All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14 uh, this morning. Now, last week we looked at the first part of verse 12. Uh, we'll finish out verse 12 and go through verse 14. Now, we've been talking about pursuing God and what it looks like to pursue God. And if our lives are going to be about seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which we're called to do at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, what does that mean and what does that look like and how does that impact our lives? And so a few weeks ago, we talked about how first we have to make a decision. We have to make a choice that says, I'm going to follow God. That being a, a Christian who walks with God does not happen magically or mystically, that we we have to make a decision to say, I'm going to place God first. Then we talked about how we have to fight against sin. We have to make a decision to see sin the same way God does. We have to make a decision to say, sin is bad and I don't want it in my life. Paul calls us to put to death that which is earthly in us and to put off the sinful activities, to, to get rid of this out of our life. Then last week we saw where Paul said, kind of in response to putting to death and putting off, to put on. So we talked about the idea of how as Christians we are in this process of transformation where we are putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off that which is of the flesh, that which is of sin, and putting on that which is of God and glorifies God and honors God. And all Christians, we are in this process of transformation. We are in this process where we are going from who we used to be and we are being made into someone new, someone different, someone whose life honors and glorifies God more. And honestly, as Christians, if we are not going through this process of transformation, there's, there's something wrong because God did not just save us just to kind of give us fire insurance and say, all right, now go do what you want. God saved us and adopted us into His family and says, I know what is best for you. If you follow me, your life will be infinitely better than if you did not. And in that, there's a transformation where we go looking less like who we used to look like and more like Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at the thing that Paul, the, some of the things that Paul says that we need to put on. So if we're being transformed, we're going to look at some of the characteristics that this transformation brings into our life. But as we look at these, what we, one of the things that we are going to see, especially as we get towards the end of the passage, is that it is love that kind of motivates and shapes all of these other characteristics. And we're going to look at that um, in just a second. But before we get to the passage, I just want us to make sure we're all on the same page. I want us to get an idea of what biblical love is. Because when the Bible talks about love, he's not talking about romantic comedy love. He's not talking about Disney love. He's talking about the love of God and what that looks like in our life. So here's our first kind of as we define love and why love is important for us as believers... The first thing that we need to understand is that love is defined by God's gift of Jesus Christ. Love is defined by the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It is God's gift of Jesus Christ that even tells us or shows us what love is. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Basically, this is what love is. Here is love defined. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction uh, for our sins. 
that love is that God, even though we did not love Him, even though we were His enemies, God chose to love us and He sent His Son to die on the cross to fully satisfy God's wrath, to fully satisfy God's justice towards our sin so that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven, that we might be adopted into God's family. And so according to this, love is seeking the best for someone else regardless of the personal cost to us. And that's what love is. Love isn't always agreeing with someone just because you want to make someone happy. Love isn't looking for some emotion and some kind of uh, flutter in your heart or butterflies in your stomach. Love is a choice to say, I'm going to seek this other individual's best regardless of what that means to me. Now, sometimes that might be a hug. Sometimes that might be a gift. Sometimes that might be a kind word. Sometimes that might be something a little bit more difficult. I love my children. Because I love my children, I have to discipline them. Sometimes that means they get grounded. Sometimes that means they get spanking. Sometimes that means they have to do some kind of chore that they might not want to do. Now, guess what my kids do every time I discipline them? They cry and they act sad and it breaks my heart. I take no pleasure in seeing them cry. It doesn't make me happy. Um, And so, but because I love them, I do that even though it's difficult because I want what is best for them. So because we love, we seek what is best for other people. Secondly, loving God and loving people is the central command of Scripture. When Jesus was being challenged by some of the Pharisees and some of his kind of earthly enemies, they asked him, well, what is the... What is the greatest commandment? If you looked at all the commandments of the Old Testament, which is most important? And Jesus' response is in Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31. He says this, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandment greater than these. There is no other commandment greater than these. So when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment of the whole Old Testament or of the whole Bible? When he was asked to kind of sum everything up, he said, love God and love people. We love God. To seek what is best for God means we seek to honor Him. We seek to follow Him. We seek to worship and glorify Him. To love other people means we seek what is best for them. We seek to serve them, to love them, to introduce them to Jesus because that's the best thing for everybody. To um, help meet needs, to show them that we love them and that we care about them. And as Christians, that is kind of the central direction that God has given us for life. And then third, love is a defining characteristic of a believer. In John chapter 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In that, Jesus commands us to love others as He has loved us, which is some mighty big shoes to fill, but also that we are to be known as His um, 
disciples uh, because of his love. The way we love other people, the way we love each other in the church, the way we care for other people, have compassion for other people, are kind to other people, have mercy towards other people, reveals to us whether we are disciples of Jesus or not. How we choose to love or not love declares to the world how close we are to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love, or the new commandment is to love me, and the way people will know that you are my disciples is by how you love. Love is essential to the believer. Love is defined by Jesus. Love is, um, I forgot my second point. Uh, Love is a central command of Scripture, and love is a defining characteristic that tells the world around us that we are Christians. All right. So with that kind of in mind, let's look at some of the characteristics that Paul lays out for us that need to be transforming in our life. So let's just start. We're going to read verse 12. We'll start at the beginning, and then we'll read through verse 14. I'll pray for us, and then we'll kind of work our way through the passage. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. Thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your word. Father God, I pray that as we look at your truth over these next few minutes, Father God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. Father God, that through the Holy Spirit, through your word, you would speak louder, God, than my feeble voice ever could. And Father God, that you would draw us closer to yourself. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay. First thing that I want us to see is that transformation starts in our hearts. Now, if you notice in this list, and then also we'll look back in the list in in, uh, chapter 5, or verse 5 and verse 8, where he kind of lays out sin. Most of the stuff that he mentions are not necessarily what we would consider actions. Here he talks about compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Now these show themselves in actions, but these are really characteristics that begin kind of at the core of who we are, and they show themselves in how we live and how we act. In the same way, if you look up in verse 5, where he's talking about the things that we need to put to death, that which is earthly in us, he talks about sexual morality, which we talked about that. That's anything from um, sex outside of marriage to lust. I mean, that kind of spans the gamut. But impurity and passion, desire, evil desire, covetousness. Um, he goes on in verse 8. He talks about anger and wrath, malice. Some of the stuff, now some of the stuff like talking it, it is an action. But a lot of this stuff are stuff that we would not consider actions, but, but they're, they're emotions, they're, they're characteristics, they're things that define us, and they're things that begin in the heart. And there's something that I think that we need to learn here, especially as we battle sin and then as we strive to walk in righteousness, is we can either look at just kind of the actions on the outside and try to, try to take care of those, or we can look at the, at the actions on the inside or kind of what drives those actions. In James chapter 1, 14 through 15, James writes this, 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. The Bible teaches us that really obedience and disobedience, both of them, begin in our heart. Begin at the, the, the heart as representative of kind of the seat of our emotions, the seat of our will, kind of the, the core of who we are that kind of drives everything else. And so let's just try to uh, illustrate this. Let's say we want to, let's say I've got a problem with uh, just, just yelling at my children. I get mad and so I just, I just yell at my kids. I can stop. I don't do that, by the way, often. Um, But I can try to stop it by just saying, I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore. But then guess what? That anger, that wrath, that is still there, and it's still going to bubble up. And it's going to find some way to get out. So I can try to just stop yelling and maybe walk out of the room or cover up my mouth or put a pillow over my face, whatever it takes me to stop yelling. Or I can say, all right, God, there's something bigger here than me yelling at my kids, and it's because I get angry so easy. And so there's anger in my heart, or there's pride in my heart, whatever it is that is driving that. So as I attack that sin, I don't want to just battle with what is seen on the outside, but I want to figure out what is it that's at the core. What is the the anger, the malice, the pride, the wrath, whatever it is that is driving that sin that shows itself externally, and I want to deal with it at the heart. In the same way, as we grow and mature, we don't want to do just outwardly good things. We want to be changed at the heart. Remember, the Pharisees were outwardly very good and moral people, but Jesus said that they were dead on the inside. So we want to make sure that as we are being changed, as we are being transformed, that it's not just we're, at, we're transformed externally in how people see us, but we want to be transformed at the heart. Because at the, as the heart is changed, then our actions are going to be changed. So it's more important to start from the inside and go outside than from the outside trying to go inside. All right, so let's kind of look at what this transformation is. So transformation changes who we are. Now in this, he goes through and he lists a few things. So we're just going to kind of take each one, one by one. The first thing that he mentions here is compassionate hearts. This is the idea of of mercy or sympathy. This is the idea of caring about other people, of being able to to feel how other people feel when they struggle. It's, It's looking at someone who is struggling. It's looking at someone who is hurting. It's looking at someone who is wrestling, maybe with a difficult time in life, maybe with a sinner in temptation. And instead of casting them down or or thinking that you're better than them or thinking that they should be doing better, you look at them and you strive to see how can I help them up? How can I pick them up? How can I love them? I'm going to give you a lot of verses with these that kind of show us God as our example. But, but Luke 6.36 tells us to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Another kind of compassion, another idea of this is mercy. And then in Matthew 9.36 it says this. This is talking about Jesus. It says, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's in a passage where it tells us in Matthew 9 that Jesus has been out. He's been out preaching and teaching and performing miracles in the villages. 
And it just kind of tells us that he looks out over the people as he's teaching, as he's investing in their life. And he sees these people who are hungry for truth. He sees these people that their, their leadership has, has led them astray when it came to, to knowing God and loving God. He sees these people who are spiritually hopeless and helpless. And he has compassion for them. He cares for them. He wants to invest his time in them. He wants to show them what is good and what is valuable and what is right. He tells tells his followers that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He looks out on the people and he says, these are people who need hope. These are people who need love. These are people who need forgiveness. And he looks out over the people and he has compassion for them. He cares for them. He feels for them. And as Christians, we are to have that same compassion in us, that compassionate heart that loves and has concern for other people. For me, one of the best illustrations of compassion comes from the book of Job. In the first couple of chapters of the book of Job, uh, Satan comes to God and God says, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, Job, or Satan says, Well, Job only loves you because you give him a lot of really good stuff. He's rich. Uh, he's got lots of land. He's got lots of animals. Uh, that's the only reason he loves you is because of what you give him. And God basically says to Satan, Look, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to let you do whatever you want to to Job. Just don't kill him. And so over the span of really a couple of days probably, Job loses all of his kids in accidents. All of his servants are killed. All of his livestock is taken off. All of his crops are uh, stolen or burned. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. He gets all these boils all over his body. And he's sitting in the dirt. And he's got four friends who walk up and they see him. They see how he's hurting. They see how he is struggling. They see the pain that he is going through. And it tells us that they sit down in the dirt next to him. And for seven days, nobody says a word because they see how bad he's hurting. And the idea there is that for seven days, and trying, instead of trying to, to tell Job that it's going to be okay, instead of trying to fix all of his problems, they sit there and they cry with him. They sit there and they mourn with him. They sit there and they grieve with him. They sit there and they are compassionate with him. They don't try to fix him, but they just say, we are going to love you and care for you and be there for you in the midst of this very difficult, hard time. So compassionate hearts. Secondly is kindness. Kindness seeks to meet the needs of others. It's concerned about uh, the needs of the, the, uh, our neighbors as much as we are our own. Now, kindness is a, is a beautiful thing. In Romans 2, 4, it tells us this. Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience um, on His, excuse me, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We are told there that it is the kindness of God, that God's desire to do good for us, God's desire to meet our needs, which draws us to repentance, which shows us that we need Jesus as our Savior. As Christians, we are to be kind to one another. We're not supposed to be mean to one another. We're not supposed to be jerks to one another. We're not supposed to be arrogant. We're not supposed to be proud. We're supposed to be loving towards one another, nice to each other, kind to one another, caring for each other. One of the best pictures of this is found in um, 
Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, we have the, the story of the good Samaritan. Most of you know that story. There's the, the Jewish man that is walking down the road. He gets attacked by robbers and left on the side of the road for dead. And you've got two religious Jewish people who pass by, priests, and um, they're not both priests. One's a priest. I think one might be a scribe. Uh, but they both pass by and they, they go to the other side of the road and they leave him laying there. And then you've got a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They despised each other. It was, a, it was a racial thing and a religious thing. They did not like each other. And so this Samaritan comes by and he sees this Jewish man lying on the road. He picks him up. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him somewhere to get his, his wounds mended. He pays for it out of his own pocket. That is kindness. Seeking to meet the needs of someone else at own cost or even more so than you would seek yourself. Next is humility. Humility is not just thinking small of yourself. Sometimes we kind of think of humility, if someone is humble, means they're kind of a doormat, or they kind of look at themselves as smaller than other people. That's not humility. Humility is rightly seeing yourself compared to God. God is perfect. God is holy. God is, is everything. God is always right. God is just. God has no sin. He has no flaws flaws or faults. And I see myself in light of that as someone who, who is far from perfect, as someone who is desperately in need of God, someone who desperately needs His love, who desperately needs His grace. That's what humility is. Um, humility is in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Humility is recognizing that I'm not strong enough and I need God. I'm not strong enough to carry my own yoke, to carry my own burdens, to carry my own sin, to carry my own pain, to carry my own struggles. I'm not big enough or bad enough or strong enough or good enough or moral enough or righteous enough. I need Jesus. And Jesus Jesus offers it. All I have to do is respond in obedience to Him. Loving obedience to Him. Humility is recognizing that God is great and I'm not, but God has offered me so much more than I could ever earn on my own. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Humility is the antidote to self-love. Humility is the antidote to saying, I'm the most important person in the room. True humility that recognizes that God is God and that I desperately need Him and I'm not nearly as good as I like to think that I am, rescues us from thinking that we are better than other people. Next is meekness. Your your, uh, version of Scripture might say gentleness. This is the willingness to um, suffer injury uh, for the sake of others. It's knowing that you're a sinner living among sinners and... Instead of responding with a desire for justice, instead of responding with a desire if somebody wrongs you or if somebody hurts you, instead of responding with, I'm going to get them back, it's responding with with grace, it's responding with love, it's responding with compassion, it's responding with forgiveness. Instead of giving someone what they have earned or deserve, you show love and compassion instead. 2 Timothy 2.25 says this, Correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. What's going on there is he's talking about, look, if you've got someone who doesn't like you, or they believe differently from you, and they're being hostile towards you, don't be hostile in return. Be gentle. Be meek. Share the truth in love. And don't try to win an argument, but try to win somebody to Christ. Maybe through your gentleness, maybe through your compassion, maybe through your meekness, God might save them. And then we have patience. Long-suffering. It's holding out of the mind before giving room to a passion or an action. It's the ability to wait. It's the ability to, to take a pause before reacting or responding. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the, most, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example of those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. The idea there, there, the picture there of patience, pictured in salvation. Well, I'll, I'll take my, my own self, for example. I grew up in church. We were at church for the most part every single Sunday and almost every single Wednesday. I did not accept Jesus Christ until I was 15 years old. And so for those first 15 years of my life, God in His patience... Now, we understand that sin it doesn't just kind of affect nobody. Every sin that we do is an affront to the very nature of who God is. So God takes all of our sin personally because it is against His very nature. And so for 15 years, every sin that I committed, God took as an affront to Himself. But instead of punishing me how I deserved, He was patient. And He waited, and He waited, and He waited until I was 15 years old. And I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and my sin and my, uh, my punishment and that justice was dumped on Jesus Christ. And so for 15 years, every sin that I committed against Jesus Christ, against God the Father, He patiently took, He patiently felt that pain. He patiently felt that, that unrighteous that attacked His very nature and character, looking forward to the time when I would place my faith and trust in Jesus. Patience is not always easy. Patience is sometimes hard when other people that we are striving to be patient for, when they are being hateful towards us, or mean-spirited, or they're going the completely opposite direction, or they're doing something to hurt us, yet patience says, I'm going to love them regardless of what they are doing, hoping and looking forward the best. And then he goes through and he tells us that transformation impacts our relationships. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now there's two things that he calls us to here. One is bearing with one another. That's enduring with one another. That's being there for one another. When someone is hurting, when someone is is struggling, we should be there. We should be that shoulder to cry on. We should be that person that can can pray with you. We should be that person that can just listen to you sometimes. That, That to bear one another just means to endure alongside each other. To care for one another. To come alongside each other. As Christians, we are to be there for each other in a numerous number of different ways. 
But he says to bear with one another. And then also he says if someone has a complaint against one another, means if one of you have wronged the other one, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Once again, those are huge shoes to fill. That is a big commandment that we cannot do apart from Jesus Christ. But the commandment there is when somebody wrongs you, especially somebody in the church, when they wrong you, our response is not to be gossip. Our response is not to be bitterness. Our response is not to be holding on to that and and not letting go. Our response is not to be, I'm going to get them even. Our response is to be the same response that God has to us. I forgive you. You have wronged me. You have hurt me. You have done something bad, but I choose to forgive you. Very black and white. There's no gray here in this area. There's no, well, you don't have to forgive if they did this. No, the commandment here, the call here is to forgive as God has forgiven you. How has God forgiven you? I'll tell you how God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me totally. God has forgiven me absolutely. God has forgiven me not holding back. Well, I'll forgive you for these sins, but I'm going to kind of hold on to these and just make sure that you do right. And if you don't do right, then I'm going to bring these back up and show them to you. No, God has separated all of my sin as far as the east is from the west. The Bible tells us that God remembers our sins no more. The same way that God has forgiven me, the same way that God has forgiven you, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God wants us to forgive each other. And then we close with this. We see that love fuels and motivates our transformation. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is foundational, not just as our life as a believer like we talked about, but love is foundational for these characteristics and for these transformations. The verse part of verse 12 that we looked at last week, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As Paul defines us and describes us in that verse, he describes us as holy and beloved. Now, I'm not going to go back over this because we looked at this last week. But these are two of the greatest characteristics that we have as Christians, and we, and we need both of them. That we are to love others, but that we're also to strive to be holy. Holy means we strive to follow God, walk with God, do what God has called us to do, be who God has called us to be. And love reminds us that that this is not just about rules. And love reminds us of why we strive to be holy. Love reminds us of the power that we have to depend upon to be holy, of, of undergoing this transformation. Let me try to rewalk what we just went through very quickly and kind of show you what I mean, how, how love kind of guides and gives us reasons for this transformation, this desire for holiness. So we talked about compassion. And so to be compassionate, first of all, we recognize God's compassion for us, that God was merciful to us, that He did not judge us for our sins, but He sent Jesus Christ, that He gives us the option. He gives us that chance to respond to His love through Jesus Christ. He, he sent Jesus Christ to be that compassion for us, to take our spot so that we don't have to face the penalty of our sins if we will just trust in Him. 
So we learn compassion through Jesus. And then we are compassionate to others because God was compassionate to us. We are compassionate to others because we love God and we love people. Because we love God, we want to honor Him. Because we want to honor Him, we strive to be compassionate to other people. We love other people because God has called us to love other people. Because we love other people, we strive to be compassionate for them, hoping for and wanting what is best. We cannot love people and not be compassionate. This is what that would look like. To love someone or to say that you love someone and not be compassionate towards them would be to see them hurting, to see them in pain, to see them struggling, and then just say, hey, have a good day. I'm going to go eat lunch. That's not compassion and that's not love. And God has called us to show or to have compassionate hearts. We know what that looks like because of how He has loved us. And because we love others, we strive to be compassionate. It is love which binds these together. Together, it's love that we understand what this is from God and we show it to others. God showed us His kindness by meeting our greatest need. So therefore, we seek to love others to meet their needs, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional. Because God loved us, we love others. Because God was kind to us, we are kind to others. Same with gentleness, that Jesus bore our burdens on the cross. Um, Jesus bears our burdens daily by sending the Holy Spirit to be there to comfort us, to guide us, to direct us, to convict us, to lead us. So in the same way, we show gentleness to others. God is patient towards us. God forgives us completely. We are called to forgive each other. We can only go through this transformation because of Jesus. We can only go through this transformation through the power of Jesus. We can only love others because God loved us. We can only love others because God is at work in our life. We need to understand and experience the love of God so that we can show that same love to the world around us. Now... Let's say you look at your life and say, Cam, I'm not a Christian. I've never placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You're going to strive to be a good person, a moral person, compassionate, uh, gentle, all this other stuff. But it's not going to fix your main problem. Your main problem is that you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter how gentle, how meek, how compassionate, how uh, loving or forgiving you are. If you do not place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, once your life ends, you still have to face the punishment for your sin, which is eternal. Turn to Jesus. That is my plea. Say you're a Christian, you look at your life and say, you know what? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. But I look at this list and, and I'll be honest. I'm not super compassionate, or I'm not super gentle, or I'm not super meek, or I'm not super patient, or I'm not whatever it might be. Well, guess what? This process of transformation, it is not instantaneous. It happens over time. The good thing is God is patient. The good thing is God is merciful. The good thing is God is gracious. So you see that you don't match up with maybe a characteristic or two or three or five on that list. 
You don't say, well, that's no big deal. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. No, you say, okay, I understand that I don't match up with that. And you go to God and say, God, you want me to be compassionate. I am not compassionate. God, change me. God, help me. God, be at work in my heart. Change my desires. Change my, my attitude towards other people. Be at work in my heart and make me who you want me to be. When we see areas that we don't measure up, our response is not to be, well, that's fine, I quit. Our response is not to be, oh, well, it's no biggie, let me sweep it under the rug. Our response is not to be, oh, well, I'm such a terrible Christian because I don't line up with this. Our response is to be, thank you, God, for showing me an area where I'm falling short. Help me, change me to where I'm more like you. It's not, let me quit, let me run away. It's, God, you've brought this to my attention. Now work in my life, change me so that I can have a compassionate heart, so I can be gentle, so I can be merciful, so I can be patient and loving and forgiving to others. It's a a mode of grace. It might not feel good to realize that that we're flawed, but God uses that to say, hey, look, here's an area where you can get better, and I want to help you do that. So let's take a moment. Excuse me. We're going to have a moment to respond. Uh, We'll have music playing in a second after I pray. And the altars will be open if you need to pray. If you need to do it at at your chair, you can do that. But here's my encouragement for this time. Do business with God. And by that I mean none of us are perfect. I'd be willing to bet there's, there's at least one characteristic that each of us falls short on. I fall short on compassion. My wife tells me that. Not frequently, but... Whenever I'm uncompassionate, she lets me know, which that's a good thing. That's what my wife should do. Um, And so I need God to help me to be more compassionate. I need God to help me to be more concerned with the hurts of others, to help me see past myself sometimes. So I go to God, say, God, help me to be more compassionate. Whatever it is, do business with God in this moment. And if you would say, Cam, I'm not a Christian, my encouragement, the business that you have to do with God is to surrender to Him and trust Him for salvation. You can do that at your seat, or you can come up and I'll be standing right up here and you can talk to me. But let's pray, then we'll have our time of response. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you have given us. Father God, I thank you for your love and your word and your grace and your mercy. Father God, I pray that you would help us to strive to walk with you. Father God, I pray for every believer in this room that you would help us to strive to love you and to follow you and to to live lives that model you and proclaim to the world that you are great. Father God, none of us are perfect. We all fall short. So Father God, when we are presented with lists like this and there's going to be an area or two where we're not perfect in or far from it, Father God, let us go to you and... Say, God, change me. God, change my heart. The core of who I am, make me different. Father God, I pray that would be our heart's desire. God, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who does not know you. Father God, we've been praying, or we started praying this morning for Easter. Let's not wait till Easter, Father God. I pray that you would save people this morning. God, that you would be at work. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.